1: I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'll admit that it's sometimes hard for me to turn on the radio in the morning and hear about the latest attack on reproductive rights. Never mind the Republican primaries, I was already plenty irked over the last couple of years as the FDA refused to enable adolescents to acquire over-the-counter emergency contraception. Now that I've read Heather Monroe Prescott's new book, The Morning After, a history of emergency contraception in the United States, which came out with Rutgers University Press in 2011, I have a better understanding of the issue. The book made me realize, for example, that getting OTC sales at all was a great victory. And the book gave me a great sense of the many actors involved in the story, from medical professionals to donors who sponsored unpopular research to feminist healthcare advocates. Heather Monroe Prescott is a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University. Join us as we speak to her about her new book. Hi, Heather. Yes. I'm glad to have you here today. We're going to talk about Heather Monroe Prescott's new book, The Morning After, A History of Emergency Contraception in the United States. So thanks for joining us, Heather. You're welcome. Um, Heather, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about your own background? How did you get into this line of work? Um, how did you how did you come to write the kind of stuff you write about?
0: Well, my training is in science and technology studies at Cornell University, so I've always been interested in women's health issues, history of reproductive rights, reproductive technology. My fir- my dissertation and first book was on the history of adolescent medicine, and that book very much dealt with issues of um, young women's health as well as young men's health, but. I spent a good portion of the book talking about adolescent gynecology and reproductive rights. And then my second book, Student Bodies, continued that discussion into the college age. And the current book is, in some ways, things that didn't make it into student bodies. But also, I thought it was an issue that deserved its own book. And so it sort of took on a life of its own.
1: Yeah, and you talk a little bit actually in your introduction about the genesis of the book. Um as a single conference paper, and then several people said we really need a book on the topic. <laughs> yes, that was very so,
0: encouraging. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um well let's let's talk a little bit about, about the, the history of this drug. Um you take us all the way back to the 1920s, um, with the discussion of hormonal therapies around around problems like infertility. Um, how does this all tie in?
0: Well, uh, the study of infertility and the study of contraception are kind of opposite sides of the same coin, and it's important to recognize that um, even the research on what became the original contraceptive pill was a byproduct of larger interests in infertility and how the reproductive, the female reproductive system, worked. and I, And I'd like to remind readers that there was a lot of technological innovation. Political activism, um, you know, I just try to introduce a a complex cast of characters whose ideas shaped what became to be known as emergency contraception. So I try to do both a scientific history and a popular history, political history and so forth to try and, and give a more complex and nuanced view of the history of this particular drug.
1: So in these early days, you have know, to take the history way back to, um, you know, to, to the early days of laboratory experimentation, in since you've got the, the scientists on the one side with their agenda, but you also have people like Martha Sanger, and you have feminists who are providing important financing, right?
0: Right, yes. Okay. It's important, of course, to recognize Margaret Sanger. And I, I just uh, reread Ellen Chesler's Woman of Valor, I signed it for my graduate history seminar and, um, you know, it's just important to recognize how much work that Margaret Sanger did in terms of laying the ground for um, the pill and also contraceptive research more generally and more importantly, getting lots of bucks to finance birth control research at a time when no government or non-governmental organization would touch it.
1: So we have um, so 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 let's get us then from these days of sort of experimenting with um, with drugs for infertility to as you say a kind of a byproduct, and of course there's a there's a relationship between what we now call the pill that is regular oral hormonal contra- contraceptives and the emergency contraception pill what's What's that relationship
0: well um shortly after the pill was introduced in the united states and and my my story looks almost exclusively at the United States and a little bit at um, Canada so uh, the story is different based on based on different geographic regions but um, shortly after the pill was introduced in the United States, there were starting to be reports about side effects there was concerns that about Taking a drug for a long period of uh, hormonal drug for long periods of time, there were reports that women had failure rates that were not consistent with experimental results. Um, so basically, um, not long after the pill was introduced, there was some concerns about how to deal with what was called noncompliance or user error, and two of the original scientists who worked on the pill, Gregory Pincus, and his associate Min Shui Shang started talking about what they called after-the-fact contraception or uh, morning-after pills, day-before pills. Um, there's a pretty flippant article by Min Shui Shang where he talks about the next innovations are going to be even more uh, precise and um, won't have to worry about whether, and in some ways it's kind of an insulting view of women that they're these um, imperfect and experimental subjects and that women for various reasons can't be trusted to take their, their um, pills on time or they're conflicted about whether they want to be pregnant or not. And then there's the whole issue of women with less education or adolescent girls and, what to do about those particular patient populations. So there's kind of a mixture of benevolence and paternalism and in some ways outright sexism that is part of the story. So it's, in other words, it's not a uniform um, story of of uniform progress. There's lots of bumps and side tracks along the road.
1: So what we have is the development of the pill um, and from the scientific community, from the medical community, um, some skepticism about whether um, whether women are going to use it properly. Correct. All right. On the one hand, you've got maybe lesser educated women, poor women, African American women who who you know just just might not know how to use their medications properly, at least in the eyes of um, of the medical establishment. And then also presumably white middle class women who, like you say, the medical establishment thinks they might be ambivalent, right, and and thus quote accidentally forget to take their pill, right. right? Um, And it's in this environment in which um, the the notion of emergency contraception becomes important. Let's talk about terminology, actually, for just a minute, because, of course, many people know know this medication colloquially as the morning-after pill. Um, But, of course, that suggests a very certain timeline, and and the the more correct term would be emergency contraception. Yes. And
0: and then the the term emergency contraception emerged at a particular moment in the drug's history, the original the scientists who developed what became known as emergency contraception usually used the scientific term postcoital contraception to indicate that this was a drug that was taken after intercourse, inter- underprotected intercourse, and um, the popular press in the '60s decided that postcoital contraception was too cumbersome and not easily understood by a general audience, and so quickly the morning after pill got coined even in some of the more general medical periodicals aimed at general practitioners. And that kind of stuck for a number of years, even though as you you just said, that technically postcoital or emergency contraception can be used. Well the latest latest product can be used, I think something like seventy up to seventy two hours after unprotected intercourse. But the morning after pill still is stuck and there's a group um, called the Morning After Pill Conspiracy that has continued to use that name as a kind of um, tongue-in-cheek flippant comment on their activism.
1: Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, and of course, this kind of relationship between the medical establishment and feminist activists is one of the key themes in your book. And uh, early on, you kind of set us up to, to think about the relationship between a um, what the medical establishment is seeing as a kind of a what you call a disease paradigm of unwanted pregnancy um, and you know this, this medication to to cure this epidemic to to approach a disease on the one hand. And then you have feminist activists who are concerned with issues of women's autonomy.
0: Right. Um, and, and um, so in, in some cases, the technological development, helps women achieve autonomy originally margaret sanger wanted a pill that would give women complete control over their fertility but the scientists that she worked with took a very different approach and were less concerned with women's reproductive rights and more concerned with issues such as um, poverty in the united states out of control population growth in the developing world and so their interest was within limiting fertility, but not necessarily empowering women.
1: So this, um, of course, we have this sort of generation, the early generation, right, of of people like Margaret Sanger and the scientists um, battling this out in a way. Uh, But it comes up again then in the 1960s when uh, the pill, as we know it, comes onto the market. Um, And we also have these discussions of emergency contraception, but even around the pill itself. uh, You start to have feminists um, skeptical of the medical establishment, of feeling that they're being used as guinea pigs. And I wonder if you could talk, that's a very important chapter in this whole history.
0: Right. Um, And um, much of this grew out of the work of investigative journalist um, Barbara Seaman, who published one of the first exposés on the dangers of the pill called The Doctor's Case Against the Pill in 19... in the late 1960s, and that led to a series of congressional hearings on the pill, on estrogen replacement therapy, on Depro-Provera, um, the use of human subjects more generally. The, t- the There were hearings on the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, the experiment of untreated syphilis in the African-American male, but a part of those hearings also included testimony from women who had been um, exposed to other drugs and not fully informed of the possible side
1: effects and dangers. So, what kind of information was getting out about about side effects and what kind well, of dangers um, were we concerned about? Yeah, I, well, this is this is the days before patients were fully
0: informed. Um, this is before. Uh, the FDA mandated, mandated that there would be a patient package insert that for patients. So usually, uh, information about side effects and contraindications were communicated directly from the drug company to the physician, and it was up to the physician to communicate that to the patients. And some physicians did, um, but given the relationship between doctors and patients prior to the 1970s, doctors gave the patient what they thought the patient needed to know, and then withheld things that they figured would interfere with patient compliance or were not necessary for the patient to um, to understand and things were worse with female patients because um, male doctors figured that female patients were stupid and um, if they they would uh, stop taking drugs if they heard um, anything that might um, possibly alarm them so uh, again, it's a product of the paternalism and, and sec- entrenched sexism of the medical profession at this time.
1: So, how are um, you know how are feminist advocates sort of organizing or articulating their concerns about this pattern, and uh, like you say, their there objections to paternalism and the possible consequences of that, having information withheld that might in fact be dangerous to women's health. Um, you talk about the emergence of, of certain organizations, uh, for example, that, that are going to become important in your story.
0: Right. Um, the, uh, one of the more well-known organizations is the Boston Women's Health Collective, which we the authors of Our Bodies, Ourselves, and they were very much interested in putting together uh, informative, putting together scientific um, but easy to un- accessible information for women so that they could feel empowered to ask the right questions, to um, find practitioners who were interested in treating them as intelligent human beings instead of as... as uh, Um, instead of infantilizing them. Um, And then the National Women's Health Network, which got started in the mid-1970s, was, I think, a more self-consciously political activist group that was criticizing um, the experimental protocols of um, drug companies, of scientists who were funded by the National Institutes of Health, were critical of the fact that it was always women who were um, the, the subject of testing new reproductive drugs they asked well why are men not being um, why are, why isn't there a male pill why isn't there contraceptives um, aimed at men and of course um, part of the reason is that Margaret Sanger wanted <laughs> wanted um, uh, contraception to be totally in the hands of women so um, so it's kind of a complex story but uh, certainly, organizations like the National Women's Health Network were on target in in showing that in some cases, the paternalism of the medical profession tended to overlook um, some of the in, uh, genuine interests of the patients in terms of safety and full, fully informed consent about possible risks and side effects.
1: So this um you know this this discussion. Um, is pretty lively in the 1970s, right? That's when you start to get to the publications like Our Bodies Ourselves, a, a very, very lively feminist healthcare movement. Um, where are we now with emergency contraception at this point? Well,
0: uh, we have, there's still, if you are, you're interested in following the ins and outs of where current practitioners and policy are, there's a group called the um, International Consortium on Emergency Contraception, and there's a subgroup called the American Society for Emergency Contraception that was organized in the late 90s to address issues particular to the United States. So right now we're still at an impasse in terms of over-the-counter access to the latest um emergency contraceptive product plan B one step. And so far the age restrictions are still in place. So you have to be 17 or older and and show an ID in order to get plan B one step over the counter. And then um, the the most recently approved new emergency contraceptive product L01, which contains a different chemical compound than Plan B, one step, um, I don't think is available over the counter yet. It was just approved by FDA, and I think there was a separate process by which you get approval to make a drug available over the counter. So so um, there's products available, but it's still difficult to get access to them, particularly if you are uh, a teenager, and, um, and uh, so... Um, and it's part of, as you know, the, the complex politics of reproduction in the United States. And I'm very discouraged with what's been happening with the, with the, um, Republican primary and talk about getting rid of Planned Parenthood. Um, you know, we have one candidate who, who says contraceptive is wrong, even for married couples. So it's, um, uh, it's pretty discouraging.
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, what we get in your book is, is you know, a longer-term history of, of scientific discussions, of political discussions, of of, uh, of social networking, activism, and so on and so forth. And I want to take us a little bit, take us back for just a moment before we get to, to the present situation, because what we've been talking about before really was a world in which um, emergency contraception, like the birth control pill, was prescription only. Right. And... Where do we get to those first discussions? It's it's, uh, quite significant that emergency contraception does become available over the counter, although, as you note, with age restrictions. Um, And, of course, that doesn't happen with the birth control pill. Uh, And and there we start to have slightly different alliances with... um, that is the relationship between feminist health advocates and the medical community, uh, population planning experts, groupers representing women of color, there's some shifting around that happens between the 1970s and the 2000s um, that, that seems to be connected with discussions about making an emergency contraception available over the counter while daily uh, oral contraceptives are not.
0: Right. And that, uh, and- for for much of the 1970s, and I'd say 1980s, women's health activists were concerned primarily with safety, and they didn't want to see, uh, they wanted to make sure that women were fully informed about and were protected from serious side effects. So over-the-counter access to ongoing regular oral contraceptives remains controversial even among women's health activists who um, were willing to accept emergency contraception, uh, um, making emergency contraception available over the counter, but we're concerned enough uh, and still are concerned enough about the possible contraindications and um, side effects of regular hormonal contraception to suggest that this should remain um, prescription only, or at least have some way of making sure that women who are at risk for blood clots, women who have high blood pressure, women who smoke or have other, um, other um, mitigating factors that would make them unsuitable candidates for oral contraceptives. So, um, so safety, um, so that, but there's um, one section in the book where I, where I talk about how to balance safety, uh, finding a balance between safety and choice. And um, also going on at the same time is that there was a movement beginning in the 90s from um, partly from drug companies and partly from consumers to make uh, more and more drugs available over the counter. And um, there's one uh, commentator at the time who who describes the rise of what he calls OTCness. And so drugs that had been previously available... Um, by prescription only, started to move um, to over-the-counter status, starting with um, certain allergy drugs and um, medication for heartburn and things like that. So so emergency contraception became part of that discussion. um, But at the same time, some physicians um, and other health professionals and some people in population organizations suggested that um, because of the consequences of, of um, unwanted pregnancy, particularly um, among adolescent girls, that uh, the benefits of making oral contraceptives, whether they be regular oral contraceptives or emergency contraceptives available over the counter, outweighed any um, safety risks. So we have different groups weighing the balance between safety and and choice in, in different ways.
1: So now we're sort of in a world where um, rather than a kind of a, of a full tension between the medical establishment who's, like you say, you're sort of paternalistic and feminist uh, healthcare advocates who are concerned about safety and concerned about women being given maybe inadequately tested contraceptives or side effects, um, now feminist activists are... Um, concerned with access, which of course is an argument for making them more available, right? right. Um, and likewise, the medical profession—you um, know—again, if, if if they're concerned about, um, you know, to use some of the old terminology, an epidemic of of non-marital births and so on. Again, accessibility is is helpful. So it's, it sort of serves to put feminist advocates and the medical establishment on the same side against cultural conservatives, right. Who are, and that's where the, where the focus on adolescence really comes in.
0: Right. And um, I also should point out that sometimes medical professionals and feminist health activists are the same people. In other words, they're referring mm-hmm. on the lines and as um, particularly the generation of um, largely female physicians who came of age during the sec- during second wave feminism and adopted some of the same principles and wanted to transform the medical profession from the inside. Start to talk about well, the prescription is a form of paternalism. So we should um, we should remove the prescription in order to empower women. So they um, so female health professionals quite deliberately adopt much of the voc- vocabulary and strategy of second wave feminism, and um, say, well, yes, we're concerned with safety, but if we really want to empower women, we need to remove the barriers to access. And um, this this message became even more intense during the 1980s when um, there was a backlash against reproductive rights, um, uh, laws that were passed that forbid using federal funds for abortion, increasing clinic violence, the rise of organizations like operation rescue which were confrontational and um, all of that uh, made um, led to a lot of um, reproachment between organizations and individuals who previously had had opposing issues on uh, opposing sides on the um, issue of um, contraceptive research and development mm.
1: so we so it's really the 1980s where we see sort some of this this shift in, in who's whos who's Allying with whom um, as a response to the political threat, basically. Correct. So let's get to um, to that era where uh, where emergency contraception actually gets over-the-counter status. This is a result of some extensive hearings in the FDA and, of course, quite a lot of politicking in the 2000s. Tell us about that story.
0: Well, the um, FDA approved um, uh, emergency contraception for um, of making available... Um, be available without prescription in in 2006 but that was after several years of back and forth between FDA uh, and activists and um, part of this was the result of um, President George W Bush's appointee to FDA had the FDA who kept holding this up and um, series of um, hearings a series of um, various citizen petitions filed by women's health organizations and, and reproductive rights organizations. And so the politics of reproductive rights during the presidency of George W. Bush um, played a huge role in, in um, complicating the process of making emergency contraception available over the counter in a way that other um, over the counter drugs did
1: not encounter. So we have um, advocates from various sides, basically um, petitioning the FDA. We have um, the medical profession, which you like which as you say, is, is by now there are a lot of women there who are basically you know as, as feminists within the medical profession arguing for greater access um, Feminist organizations, but also socially conservative organizations, petitioning against. And this is the Bush presidency, um, and there's a there's a head of the FDA um, who who sympathizes um, with cultural conservatives and um, is concerned with blocking this. So it's quite a politicized process. What what makes it finally possible to get it through? Well, I think um, partly um,
0: what happens is that. Um, Sorry, I'm having trouble with my <laughs> with my uh, microphone. Um, could you ask that question again?
1: What makes it possible to to finally get OTC status, given given the rather hostile environment?
0: Well, I think part of it is just sheer persistence, and mm-hmm. um, and um, also activism by women in Congress, who um, particularly uh, uh, Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton, who um quite sex- successfully heads up a campaign to block votes on the approval process for um uh Bush Bush appointees until um until uh the FDA moves ahead on approving the OTC application for plan B so it's it's um it's persistence it's uh confrontational politics there's a group called the morning after pill conspiracy that marches on Washington as part of the March for Women's Lives. So it's um it's old fashioned in your face direct, uh nonviolent direct confrontation <laughs> uh-huh. uh, that and persistence by um groups across um uh the various um, organiz- medical organizations, um non-governmental organizations for reproductive rights, feminist organizations. Like now and um, Planned Parenthood, so it's just um and just a, a maelstrom of media attention to the whole issue
1: and you know one thing that's that's uh that interested me when I read this was that um as you say, even now, it's not actually available literally over the counter or that you have to actually go to the counter. It's not like aspirin that you can just pick up off the shelf.
0: Right. Um, it's, and- it's
1: more like cold medicines that can be used to produce meth. <laughs> you know, right.
0: yeah, I mean, um, yeah, emergency <laughs> contraception is one of maybe is one of the few drugs that you can't literally get over the counter. You don't need a prescription, but you still have to go to the pharmacist desks and ask for it and show an ID showing that you are. Over the age of 17, and um, as you mentioned, certain cold remedies containing pseudoephedrine have been placed behind the counter because um, they can be used to make crystal meth, and there, um, and so there's limits on how much you can buy, and um, also that pre- to prevent shoplifting and and so forth. So, um, in a sense. Um, uh, emergency contraception is in this nebulous category between true over-the-counter drugs, which you know, which you can buy pick off the pick off the shelf and just go pay at the cash register, and um, uh, and prescription drugs.
1: So, in a sense, you do have um, th- there's there's a bit of potentially an intimidation factor in practical purposes. That is, you have to actually go ask someone who might look at you disapprovingly, um, or more seriously today might claim, you know, reason of conscience, a uh, refusal to distribute this in the current environment, if I if I understand correctly. Right,
0: right. And then there's one or two cases of um, men attempting to purchase emergency contraception and, and being told that they can't buy it. And I've heard from mm-hmm. teenagers that, um, say, uh, a girl needs, who's under, who's 17 or younger, needs emergency contraception and her boyfriend is 18, mm-hmm. well, he'll go, and, mm. and buy emergency contraception for her, if you can. <laughs> um,
1: right, So right.
0: part of it is, is you know, uh, a product of the um, age restriction, but there's this urban legend that there are rapists out there who are sexual predators who uh, assault young girls and then make them take emergency contraception so they don't get pregnant, and I think that's... Um, uh, if if those sex, alleged sexual predators are out there, I'd like I have yet to see one <laughs> uh, an actual report um, on one. So,
1: well, and of course, all of this, you know, at the time you wrote the book, um, it's, a, it's a very recent book, but nevertheless, it does predate uh, the current season of of um, pres- presidential electioneering and right. the discussions about contraceptives more generally. Right, and I, I, you know, aside, you know, of course, there's. As, as, as we know well from reading your book and others, there's a, a continuous strand of cultural conservatism that's, that's very suspicious of contraceptives and certainly of the, the notion that teenagers might get their hands on them or unmarried people in general. Um, but beyond that observation, I, I, I wonder if you feel that your research into this has given you any special insights into, into current debates about, about contraception.
0: Well, first of all, I have to say that I'd never see in my lifetime candidates attacking contraception. I can certainly understand how abortion, how and why abortion remains a political hot potato. And, but um, it's amazing to me that in the 21st century that we still have politicians like Rick Santorum saying that contraception is bad. And I know it's part of that comes from the teaching of the Catholic Church, but that's so out of line with what probably the vast majority of Catholics, particularly Catholic women, believe. So um, it's, you know, the optimistic side of me hopes that um, Republican candidates are overreaching and that reports of moderate Republican women, um, abandoning the party, (laughs) uh, and, um, speaking, you know, voting with, um, uh, for their interest in, um, reproductive rights for birth control. Anyways, I think abortion is going to remain a, um, contentious issue, but it seems to me that, um, if anything, um, continues to affect the political, I, I think that, there's, there's such a large percentage of the American population that considers birth control access to contraception not just a, a right, um, that this is, is something that has been established as a right that all um, people in the United States um, deserve. And, um, and if, I think if you'd ask, um, well, I can't, you know, I can't, not being a parent myself, but I think um, parents of teenagers might, agree that preventing pregnancy is better than um, the alternative. So at least I would hope that.
1: And, you know, one thing that, that comes through loud and clear in your book is, of course, the distinction between rights and actual access. And this is something we think about quite frequently when we think about abortion. You know, yes, there's a right to abortion, but there are states. In which you know, with the majority of the population, has to drive you know, three or six hours to get to the nearest actual provider, um, and you know, twenty-four hour waiting periods, and you know, that so, so access is made difficult. Um, and here, in, in your book, we have that kind of on a on a more humble scale. But again, that the the business of 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 having to to go show at ID, having to um, you know present yourself directly face to face with a pharmacist. To actually get the pill, rather than being able to, you know, again pluck it off the pluck it off the shelves of the of the drugstore, um, it's a kind of a a more quotidian, you know, way of thinking of um, of the possible limits to access. But of course, we do hear more and more about um, a language saying that you know pharmacists perhaps uh, can excuse themselves from dispensing medications that they're more that they morally object to. Um,
0: yeah and and you know part of it is um you know is is that sort of access, but another barrier is is cost um one of the things that's happened with the, with um over the counter drugs more generally is this they tend to um, uh be as expensive if not more expensive than prescription drugs, and they're and they're usually not covered by health insurance, so um anybody who thinks that there are um women and girls out there who use emergency contraception every time they have sex need to understand that I think um, plan B one step costs something like 50 or 60 dollars and that might be low-balling it so whereas a package of oral contraceptives costs um, considerably less than that so um, uh, I think I don't know <laughs> I have health insurance but um, so one of the I guess the ironies of the move to over-the-counter status is that Um, for women of low income, it's actually made it um, more expensive to use emergency contraception. And so what some clinics continue to do is um, you can get, uh, if you go to, say, Planned Parenthood um, or a clinic that's funded by um, federal Title X funds, then you can get... um, emergency contraception and oral contraceptives at reduced cost. So, but that means you have to go and make an appointment, see a doctor and that, um, so there are economic barriers that need to be considered as well. And so another alarming thing that's happening with, um, all the debates about, um, the, um, healthcare reform act is, um, who is going to pay for contraception and, um, the the d- discussion is about prescription drugs, but there's no discussion about non-prescription drugs. So,
1: um,
0: if if you really want to talk about access, you also need to talk about economic access as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and I, um, I, I myself hadn't realized that dollar figure um, for emergency contraception. And of course, there is, you know, as we see in the in the, you know, the history of discussions of emergency contraception, you know, concern. Um, uh, that, that women will just use this as their contraceptive. Um, um, and, you know, if coming from a couple of different sides, you know, from, from cultural conservatives who thinks it's a ticket to you know, irresponsibility, um, but also to, to medical professionals and, um, feminist health advocates who are, are, you know, concerned about, about side effects. This is not something you want to be taking a couple of times a week. Right. Um, but, um, but, as you say, the cost factor <laughs> might make that discussion very well, just just moot from the beginning, All right. Um. And this is, you know, an incredibly contemporary book. I mean, even, you know, the you know, within the last couple of years, of course, the discussions of uh, of what the age barrier should be. You know, this is something that's really quite current. You know, eighteen, seventeen, sixteen. You know, this is this is all within our very recent memory. Um, never mind, as you, you know, as you note, the now expanded discussions of contraceptives. Period. Um, so it's 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 very interesting to read this. You know, given our current economic, current geopolitical. Uh, climate discussions. Let me um, let me ask you sort of our traditional wrap up question uh, for listeners who are interested in your work. What are you What are you working on now?
0: Well, um, I'm kind of uh, trying to um, formulate my next project, but the uh, in terms of a monograph. But what I'd like to do in the near future is put together a symposium for the 50th anniversary of the Griswold versus Connecticut decision in 1965, which um, was the first time that the Supreme Court recognized a right to privacy, at least in terms of marital situations. So that was the decision that overturned laws in Connecticut and other states that prohibited married individuals from obtaining contraception. And so that kind of formed the basis for the notion of a right to privacy that um, was later extended to abortion in Roe v. Wade. And um, Griswold tends to be seen as a precursor to Roe, and I'd sort of like to um, have some kind of um, commemorative symposium that explores um, the Griswold decision on its own terms. And since I'm in Connecticut and we have pretty um, strong organizations for Connecticut history, including a journal and um, uh, and um, institutions like Yale, which have um, pretty strong graduate history programs, and the University of Connecticut as well. So, um, so that's what I'm, I'm kind of entertaining for the um, short term. And I, I'd like in some way to continue looking at the history of um, feminist activism and reproductive technology, but at the moment it's kind of, um, I'm, I'm still trying to formulate how I go about doing that.
1: Interesting, uh, yeah, because of course we are coming up on the fortieth anniversary of Roe v. Wade, um, right, and right. I can say sh- shortly thereafter the fiftieth anniversary of Griswold. Well,
0: actually, it's soon. Uh, actually, it's yeah. sooner. It's next year because Roe v. Wade right. is nineteen
1: seventy three. So, right, yeah. I'm going to
0: let Texas deal with. It. Oh. <laughs> so I'm sure there's probably somebody who's already working on
1: something in the works. Yeah, Wade, yeah. So. This is very, very interesting stuff, and I'm grateful you took the time to talk to us oh, today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks so much. We've been talking to Heather Munro Prescott about her new book, The Morning After, A History of Emergency Contraception in the United States. Thanks again, Heather. You're welcome. We've been talking to Heather Munro Prescott, author of The Morning After, A History of Emergency Contraception in the United States. I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies. Thanks for joining us today.